Ninamani, Munorai Dai Wangadi, Mani Naputni, Kiani Yatana. Dai Wangadi, Mani Naputni, Wiki Yitpi. Motoria Pindi, Naku Nakundi. Hello and welcome to Ghana Country. As an ambassador of the Ghana people, it is also my pleasure to welcome you to this podcast from the South Australian Museum. Hello and welcome to the South Australian Museum podcast. I'm your host, Meg Lloyd. Today I have an interview with paleontologist Dr Liz Reed. Liz is a lecturer and researcher in paleontology at the School of Biological Sciences in the University of Adelaide and a research scientist in paleontology here at the South Australian Museum. Her research focuses on the Quaternary period, particularly the last 100,000 years. She's a passionate scientist and cave aficionado. Liz is the featured scientist in the current Her Story display at the museum. The Her Story display features prominent women in STEM and is made possible by the support of the Honourable Diana Laidlaw AM. I hope you enjoy. The wine region where um, where the caves are is the Rat and Bully wine region, and in the sort of late nineties, early two thousands, it was really starting off as as a being developed as a wine region. So a lot more, even though it was established, there was a lot more growth um, in new vineyards, and we got a call. Um, it was probably about two thousand and three to say that a cave had been opened up in, in a new vineyard and can we come and have a look? And we, being my partner, Steve, is also a cave addict. We went there and we were greeted with basically red dirt and a hole in the dirt and there was a ladder going down in the into it and we sort of peered in and down we went. And uh, there's no feeling like it to be first in a new cave. And so... I remember us crawling through just very, very carefully. You have to very carefully go through a new cave. You don't want to wreck it on the first trip. So we picked our way very carefully to just get a feel for the extent of this cave. And we only went for about maybe 60 metres, 80 metres, and we come the way back and I was looking up at the ceiling when my partner Steve caught up with me and he said, wow, there's a big piece of bone on the floor here. And I said, well, look up and we looked in the ceiling of the cave and there's actually lots of big bones in its in the ceiling and they're probably whale bones <laughs> whale bones so they actually were part of the limestone uh, so they were as ancient as the the ancient sea that was there so about 15 million years ago so we could just see these big pieces of bone through the limestone and the only thing they could be was really a whale so, as you can imagine, that's not something you find in a cave every day. <laughs> so, we're pretty excited about that uh, and thought we'll, we'll go now. It's, we'll tell the owner, yeah, it's, it's pretty significant. Bring them in to have a look. And then we thought, oh, we haven't gone down to the left there and followed that little lead. So, we went down that lead and, and just stopped and our jaws dropped on the floor. And there ahead of us was red dirt, the usual narrow court, with bones of, of megavorna and kangaroos all over it. So, we thought... Okay, we've also got one of the things Narricourt is famous for is these, um, you know, megafauna deposits. That was a good day. <laughs> so we've actually been working on them. A really good situation where the landowners uh, support the research and, and this particular landowner has been fantastic and actually put a secure entrance on the cave to protect it. 
So we've been doing more work on this particular deposit and one of those is dating the, the deposit. So that one, the deposit there is about 80,000 years old. Yeah. Okay, so do you want to start by introducing yourself? Um, Dr. Liz Reed, a paleontologist at the South Australian Museum. Hmm, it's an interesting question for me when I realised I wanted to be a scientist because that was actually quite late in my life. Uh, I think the foundations were there as a kid. I was always really curious, pulling things apart, and if someone gave me something, I'd sort of dismantle it and put it back together again. But absolutely obsessed with animals and nature and I think that curiosity and that that interest in the natural world probably did evolve over time to to being a natural scientist. <laughs> did you want to be anything in particular when you were a kid? Um, I pretty much was completely tunnel vision to horses. Yeah horses were my entire life <laughs> so I didn't really tune into much else outside of that except Archaeology, I, the one thing I sort of fantasised maybe is being an Egyptologist and my poor mother, I would drag her to the museum pretty much every weekend and the Egyptian gallery was a very firm favourite along with the taxidermy animals and the dinosaurs, etc. Oh. Okay, so then did you know before you went off to uni, did you do science first? I, yeah, roundabout way. I First I did a, a horse degree at um, uh, Roseworthy, just uh, straight out of high school. Bachelor of Horses? It was a horse husbandry and management diploma, two-year course. Then I uh, worked in the industry for a few years. I was a stud groom at an Arabian stud and various other things, dressage rider, and on track then to be a horse vet. That was what I wanted to do. And uh, so I went, started uni, so I could do the first year of uni, so I could get into Melbourne to um, actually study vet and be a horse vet. Right. So you were really into horses. Oh, yeah. Did you have horses? Yes. Yeah, I'd had horses. I'd been riding since I was about four. When I went to uni, um, so I went to Flinders and I was in a a Bachelor of um, Arts in archaeology and biology and I was really I think I was really interested in archaeology but at that point it was very much classical and I found after a little while it just wasn't old enough for me (laughs) I was really hoping to do sort of older stuff which is interesting and I also started really getting into biology and was doing animal behavior and some things I really found interesting and then out of almost an accident but out of interest in what this subject would potentially be I I enrolled in a vertebrate paleontology course. I knew a bit about it and I decided that it sounded really cool and it went down to Narracourt Caves. It was a really challenging time for me personally. I had a lot of problems with my family. My dad was pretty much um, going through cancer and um, wasn't going well at all with that and I remember him saying to me look I, I was sort of on the fence whether I'd actually go to Narracourt because he might need my help and he said look look go you really want to go you want to go down to the caves just do it I'll be fine and I did and 
that changed everything for me. Narrow Court Caves literally turned me into a paleontologist. How was that when you first went down there? When was the first time? Yeah, that was February 1995 and the place was absolutely a buzz because in December of 1994 it had received World Heritage Listing. So I was coming in on the, off the back of that and the whole team there were really excited and I didn't really know what to expect with this course. I had a strong anatomy background from my horse study, so I knew my way around a, a bone. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and I, I went into the caves for the first time. My lecturer, Rod Wells, was one of the people that discovered the fossil beds. He gave us a tour and I just was blown away by caves. I remember, I, I don't know how much I was listening, to be honest, because I was just, just looking at everything and... I always joke it sounds really corny that it was love at first cave and it literally was <laughs> and I've pretty much almost been there ever since. What do they look like? So I think what, one of the things that really struck me to start with about Narracourt caves and this is quite often any caves is what you don't see is that there's masses of cave passage under the bushland there that there's no hint that there's a cave there and I found that amazing this mystery and then some of these caves have entrances open that you can go into so you'll see this entrance but there might be kilometers more cave passage with no entrance and uh, the other thing that really got me is being sort of a closet sort of archivist nerd since I was actually quite young I love cataloging things and old historical books was that the caves were actually recording history in their own way. In they, they were collecting material from the surface. So not just were they caves, which is amazing, they're beautiful limestone caves with lots of drippy crystal stalactites and formations. It's really like another world. But in places there's these deep beds of red dirt and that sediment, as we call it, contains up to half a million years of, of history and biodiversity in the bottoms of those caves. And to me, that just blew my mind. Mm. Yeah, mm. they are amazing. Yeah. They're terrifying. <laughs> I'm terrified of being in a closed space. <laughs> Aren't some of them very small? Yeah, some of them are pretty small. Um, fortunately for me, I discovered that I had no issues with claustrophobia, <laughs> which was lucky because... In my younger years, I did a lot of caving and it really didn't bother me, whichever, you know, whatever it sort of threw at me. I was quite happy crawling around and, you know, being in a tunnel with my, you know, head on my side, I had to take my helmet off. It's too so flat and squeezy that, um, you know, you have to sort of crawl along. But that was just part of the appeal. I mean, you kind of have to work for it. And, and I found that really interesting. So I kind of took to caving. I, I don't consider myself a caver. I, I've met... And worked with lots of cavers, the real classic speleologists. Um, I just like to go into caves and do my stuff. Um, but those same speleologists took me under their wing, I think, and actually taught me a lot, which was important. Could you talk a little bit about, for people who don't know much about megafauna? Mm -hmm. 
can you talk about the kinds of creatures that you find down there? Well, there's lots of different animals that we find at Narracourt in the caves and one group, they're kind of broadly called megafauna but it's a really tricky term because megafauna usually refers to mammals over about 40 kilos so that includes most people really I think <laughs> it certainly includes me um, but we use that I guess for these uh, extinct animals that went extinct in Australia about 45,000 years ago as a catch-all for that group of animals that went extinct at that time. So this includes remarkable animals like diprotodon, two and a half thousand kilo um, herbivore. Um, there's also uh, one of the ones that we find a, quite a lot of is thylacoleo carnifex, which is a marsupial predator. Um, we find uh, one of the other things that was really exciting was uh, we found the first bone of the giant lizard, Varanus priscus. It used to be called Megalania. I actually like that word, <laughs> Megalania. Um, and we found that in one of these caves under a vineyard. Uh, giant snake called Wanambi. Just weird and wonderful kangaroos, short-faced leaf-eating kangaroos. Very diverse group of animals in the past there. Are the mammals in Australia now descended from those or is it a different line well it's it's an interesting one that um quite often when we in you know talking to people that come to the caves to visit one of the things they get confused about is whether the animals that we have the megafauna animals we have at narrow court are the, the so the current kangaroos for example are descended from those megafauna the really cool thing about it is they're actually all living side by side so gray kangaroos that they might see at the park right now eating grass were the same ones that were eating grass not far from diprotodons in the, in the forest of Narracourt. So the really special thing about Narracourt and, and this time period, um, so if we're looking at the last half a million years, is that we have a mix of living extant species that are still here that survived that extinction and those that didn't. So we a lot of these animals we're familiar with and because of that, we can use these records to help us understand things that are important to biodiversity for the future, such as the extinction crisis that's currently going on in Australia. How will animals respond to future climate change, for example? extinction crisis and mass extinction that's going on yeah i think it, it's something it, it's a hard pill to swallow that since colonization of australia we've fundamentally changed the environment and we now have the unenviable record of of having the highest mammal extinctions in the world since colonization i think we, we you know it's the records going up higher and higher i think we're close to 40 species now um, and if you thought about it, if, if you didn't have the benefit of the fossil record and historical records, you would probably take at face value that the animals we have in Australia now are the animals we've always had in Australia now. But what the fossil record gives us is that window in, into these uh, populations of animals and their distributions before um, those extinctions, before we've really changed the habitat. And if we go back, you know, the half a million years, we can see this very long record at Narracord. And if then we string together fossil records from across Australia, 
then we get a really vivid picture. And this is the same story everywhere. We see, you know, 50, 60 more percent loss of, of mammals that we see before colonisation and, and now. So this is a significant thing that's gone on across Australia. And I think it's really interesting that we can use the fossils to help us sort of understand those past distributions. One of the things I love about Narracourt Caves is that it is a tourist site. You know, people come there and share stories. So we have some very powerful stories to share with the public. And one of those is the loss of biodiversity. And I think when, when you ask what can we do about that, it's, it's one of those frustrating things that we can feel powerless about. But one of the things that we can do by sharing stories is build advocacy um, to get people to be champions for biodiversity and that's a really important thing and we've seen that people power can help we've also seen that you know we need to have a big improvement in the investment in biodiversity conservation in this country and I, I guess I'm not the only one a lot of a lot of us get frustrated that it's not being treated like a crisis because it absolutely is a crisis and I worry that we're kind of disconnected from nature a lot now and that it's really short-sighted because if biodiversity collapses, well, that's curtains for us too in, in so many ways. So it's nice to think that even working on fossils can actually help towards that. One thing that I learned very quickly, thanks to cavers, the speleologists that, that took me under their wing, was that I had my interest in the bone deposits, but there's a lot more to caves than that, and they taught me that um, very firmly at some stage. They taught me to not be ignorant in caves, and that I, I think over the years my, my interest has extended way beyond fossils in caves to caves in a general sense, because... I think they are the most fragile of all terrestrial ecosystems and because people have visited them as tourists for you know for centuries and and in recent years in the last hundred years or so we've seen caves presented to the public almost like fantasy places with colored lights and all sorts of stuff and it, there's such an interesting story there about life in caves about the the things that live in caves and evolve in caves and how I think caves are almost like a, a blueprint for biodiversity across the planet to me because they show you how you interrupt one little part of that critical system and that affects the entire system. So if you were to, for example, take out a keystone invertebrate that brings energy into that system, you would see a lot of um, decline in, in other species there. And how the slightest thing, the types of lights you use as a in a show cave or, you know, if someone drops the little tiniest bit of food or they're bringing my mistake, that causes fungi. All that interplay to me is fascinating and I've become a bit of a cave greenie, <laughs> which is quite appropriate. Um, last year, the International Year of Caves and Casts, I've extended it now to 2022 as well. So my passion for caves really does go to conserving them and getting... Uh, helping people understand that they're not just these slow, static 
things that are pretty, they are actually really critical ecosystems in so many ways. So, yeah, I, I'm a very proud cave cave conservationist now. Yeah. Um, in fact, last year I was lucky enough to get a, a grant for the Australian government's Australian Heritage Grant Scheme to do a values assessment on all the natural values of Narracourt Caves. So we'll unearth even more fascinating information in the coming years. The wonderful thing about working at Narracourt for so many years is that we have a lot of community support for our research and uh, we have a currently a project, an Australian Research Council linkage project and half of the partners are local. So we have the national parks at Narracourt Caves, the local council Narracourt Lucendale, Terra Terre and Rattanbully Wine Region and I think that really makes it special and of course our South Australian Museum connection with that research as well. It still amazes me that we can find new things. I mean, there's been work at Narracourt Caves for a very long time and we don't expect to be finding new species a lot. We find new species for the site. And I remember in 2012, I was digging in one of the caves called Bat Cave and I started to uncover with my brush some teeth and it was a small piece of the maxilla, so the upper jaw of a, a kangaroo. And I've done this a few times when there's unexpected things you don't, you don't usually find. And you don't really believe your eyes. <laughs> well, that's what I go through anyway. And I started uncovering. I'm looking at going, no, it can't possibly be. And so I uncovered a bit more and then I'm just, oh, no, it can't. It just can't be. So I kept working around the other things and I eventually lifted this bone. And I brought it out. And I looked and I thought, no, it's got to be this particular animal. Went in the next day um, and Steve was with me. And, of course, he's very lucky. He always finds good things. The, one of the first things he found was then the uh, maxilla of this animal, which has a very distinctive premolar tooth. And the animal's called Propliopus ocellans. And it is exceedingly rare. It's only been found from probably eight or nine sites across Australia and there'd be well and truly less than 15 specimens of it and there it was sitting in front of me and it was funny how my brain couldn't make sense of that because it was the first record for the caves as well so that was particularly exciting and it's happened to me before in another little vineyard cave we went into in the middle of the night we got a call and crawled into this treacherous little thing um, little cave and one of the first things I picked up again was a piece of of upper jaw of a large something very large and I thought I looked at it no it can't be it must be a cow or something had a proper look no it was palakestes again a incredibly rare megafauna species so sometimes you just have these <laughs> amazing experiences when you find something new but for some reason my brain just tries to convince me it can't possibly be for a while and then eventually I come to terms with yes this is actually something really different very cautious yeah <laughs> have you looked at specimens of these things before or just drawings or photographs of the specimens um yeah I think I've, I'd seen other specimens of of both of these and also you 
as a paleontologist, you try to train yourself to be familiar with, um, you know, the key animals that you're likely to find. Uh, mm. So, and you, you also know straight away if there's, there's features, you know, whether you're dealing with a kangaroo's tooth or whether you're dealing with thylacoleo's tooth. So you certainly... Um, you know get a really good idea of what you've got and you get very very good at uh, being able to tell something from the <laughs> tiny little fragment um, while you're digging do you bring the specimens back here or do you leave them in situ um it depends that that depends very much on the situation so if it's say in a quarry and it's been the cave's been you know broken open um and we work with the quarry owners which we've had you know a lot of success with the local quarry owners in town um that we'd if a cave isn't going to be stable enough to keep then we'd remove all the material if it's a cave that uh, we could protect into the future and there was no need for us to dig everything out then that's ideal because then we do leave some for the future but we do usually excavate a, a representative sample of material and that gets studied either at the university and then brought to the museum here so everything we collect ultimately ends up as a South Australian Museum specimen which is cool. <laughs> uh, does that mean that you you would have been a student you would have had some dealings with the museum collection and then come and work with it later on yeah that's right I was actually an honorary here for a long time too um gosh 10 years or something and I had some really wonderful museum staff that used to come to Narracourt and teach with the courses I was involved with at Flinders and they were just so just wonderful people to be mentors and one of them in particular was Mark Hutchinson uh, who's here is, is a hepatologist and um, he helped us identify the, the giant lizard bone we found and Mark and I wrote a paper and I remember Mark was always a really great mentor and all the staff here at the museum you know Jim Galing and paleontologists were always really generous and Neville Pledge with their time so I have hugely fond memories of the museum and when I actually got the job here I, I just couldn't believe it, it was just yeah <laughs> quite amazing for me to come full circle yeah you know I teach a lot of students and a lot of people young people they might be 20 18 really agonise over the fact they haven't settled on what they're going to do yet and you see that in a lot in first year second year uni students and I say that's fine <laughs> you know I didn't find what I really wanted to do until my mid-20s and uh, it's not a problem you know I think the other thing that people often say to themselves well I'm not smart enough or I'm not good enough or I'm not whatever enough to be a scientist and honestly a lot of it is passion and motivation to be a scientist and particularly like me a field scientist if you if you want to get out in nature and that's certainly what I've liked to do I hope I think I've spent half my adult life at Narracourt Caves and I hope I'm still you know 
30 years time when I'm old and cranky I'm still still working on the caves would be brilliant to me but I would love to see uh, someone else you know some of my students take the bat baton and keep the work going and I'd I'd really hope that the caves are conserved and still there to show people in you know 500 years that would be my aim Thank you so much for sharing your stories and talking to us about how much you love the caves. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the South Australian Museum podcast. Audio production for this episode was by me, Garner Welcome by Uncle Michael O'Brien, and theme music by Peter Saunders. Thank you to Dr Liz Reed for generously sharing her stories with us. Please get in touch with us on social media or by emailing programs at samuseum.sa.gov.au. Natalia, Nakata, thank you and see you later.